Welcome to Seemingly Ordinary. It's a podcast where I interview people who on the surface may appear to be totally ordinary, but underneath the surface, they have amazing things going on. Father Mark is the chaplain at St. James Academy in Lenexa, Kansas, and he is the pastor of St. Joseph Catholic Church in Shawnee Mission, Kansas. He attended Benedictine College, and he did his seminary studies and work in St. Louis. He was born on Leap Day, and he was homeschooled for nine out of 13 years. So, it's so good to have you here. Hi, Thank Father you, Mark. I am not the pastor at St. Joseph. I am the associate pastor. Father Scott Wallace is the pastor, so I'm just uh, a lowly associate just helping out here and assisting him. But it's good to be here, though. I just wanted to correct that because less people get that the wrong opinion. Wrong impression. Wrong, wrong impression, opinion. right. Yeah. And they think, wow, he's really important. No, not right. Not really. Um, eighth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness That's right. against That's a podcast audience. So mm-hmm. thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, no, 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 no. That was my mistake. Um, you know, I just want to briefly pause and compliment you on just giving the best homilies. Seriously. Because, you know, you're funny. You're serious. You can be stern. You can be lighthearted. You can be profound. You can be whatever the opposite of profound is hilarious. And you could just be sort of thoughtful, musing, sort of like, thinking something through. Mm-hmm. I remember one time a speechwriter said that she always felt like a good speech was the audience and the speaker thinking together. And, and sometimes you do that too, which I just think is great. Um, and I just also really love the fact that you always bring family into your stories and, and just the fact that you do tell stories. So I, I just wanted to compliment you on all that. Thank you, Tim. Well, thank you, Tim. It's high praise. No, thank you. I mean, you make going to mass a pleasure. You really do. Um, I think, okay, I think, be, I think it should be enjoyable. Yeah, I do it too. Shouldn't be painful and onerous, you know. I mean, it, yeah, I, a big combination of everything in life. It should be challenging, but it should be a joy. It should be all of the above. So right. it's exactly. like lifting weights or something. You know, it's good. We want to do it. It makes us stronger. Sure. It takes our mind off of all of our troubles. But at the same time, it's a challenge. It just makes us better. That's probably the lamest comparison I've ever made in my life. That's okay. It's fair. Okay. Enough about me and, and <laughs> what I'm thinking. Let's get into your secret origin story. Okay. I just, I love finding out about what type of a person somebody was. So when you were a little kid... Um, just what type of little kid were you? Uh, believe it or not, it would be very different than I am now. Um, so people thought I was very mature. Uh, I was just, I would say, more quiet. Sometimes we mistake quietness for maturity. At least I think that's what they did with me because, um, and I, maybe I was, but I do remember just a lot of anxiety as a kid. Um, and so I would usually observe and just be quiet. And again, people call that maturity. Uh, and it took a while to grow into, I suppose, who I am today. Um, you can see a lot of personalities and traits from my parents, um, particularly my dad, who is uh, required to be in front of people a lot. He's a, an attorney, and he deals with very important people and um, those who are uh, very blue collar at the same um, not that they're not important they just in terms of their work would not be I guess by society standards they, that some people might not consider that important but um, they're they're only the people who make society work yeah I mean the, it's a, the, the muscular class it's hard not to we would say 
those who society considers upper echelons, and then there are those that are just, again, more ordinary folk. Maybe that would be a better way of saying it. But Yeah. Um, so, you know, he would have dealt with judges and, you know, at times um, high-ranking people in the legislature and the government, uh, but then also people who worked for, you know, Goodyear or, um, you know, Frito-Lay and things like that. Okay. And, and so comfortable talking to a wide variety of, of people. And I did watch and observe that. Um, I would go to his office a lot as a kid, and you would see different types of characters in there. And the way he was comfortable and interacted very freely with all of them, um, without much difference, really. I mean, he tried to treat, he still treats everybody the same. But I think he's more comfortable, or he would have, I guess, grown up more with blue collar people. So his, his dad was a truck driver. And, um, and that's why he decided to do work, comp- uh, work litigation. Um, but for me, you know, watching and observing that was helpful, but at the same time, you still kind of have to get out there and start to, to try that. And I think the best place, you know, I did some of that in high school. I was homeschooled, but I still got, I mean, I saw some people. But I really, I think, probably um, flourished uh, and began to make mistakes and to grow into who I was during uh, Benedictine College, and then um, and then and focus as well. Focus the focus. Oh, you did focus. Yeah, for two years. Okay, tell people what focus is, please. Well, the Fellowship of Catholic University Students is now becoming more of a household name, but in two thousand six, when I left college, it was still kind of fledgling group. In some ways, it was. Uh, I don't think they were at 50 campuses yet. Um, now they're at you know international campuses and um, they're all over the place. But uh, at the time it wasn't super big yet. It, I think it began '98, and you know it was very Benedictine was one of the first schools to have it, and so we were very comfortable with it there. But most people really didn't know what it was. And you, you as a focused missionary, the group is composed of of recent college graduates was how they used to tout it. It's probably, I don't know if that's always accurate because sometimes people are a little bit longer out of college, but most of the time the kids are 22, 23, and they go back to college and to evangelize. The thinking being that there's a lot of relevance to them and that they were just in college themselves and there's a lot of ability to connect with them and then to teach uh, and to preach the gospel and to evangelize. And um, it began when Curtis became, uh, noticed that there was no Catholic entity. Catholic, uh, Campus Crusade is the um, Christian group, but there is no Catholic group, and so he founded Focus. So when I did that for two years before I went to seminary, um, it was a good experience for a lot of reasons, uh, one of which was being able to, or having to, I should say, talk to people of all types and to really uh, stretch your comfort zone. I was fairly comfortable already, but, it, it, you know, if I was, I think I grew even more in terms of just, you know, there were people that were very much opposed to the church. Um, I went to a campus that wasn't particularly Catholic. I went to UMKC, and it's a commuter school. And You went to UMKC? To work, right? Okay. To work, to work at. That well, I the, just think that's so weird. Maybe I knew you, but I didn't know you because I was there for 20 years as an English instructor. It would have been 2006 to 2008. Yeah, I would have been there. And I would have thought, I guess I, I, I didn't really feel much 
openness to religion and Christianity, at least from what I encountered. No, no. I mean, okay, listen, I'm in the English department, and uh, there's just a lot of people who are, I, I just hate to say this, I truly hate to say this, pretty hostile, hostile toward word, yeah. almost any organized religion. Um, the people who were not hostile oftentimes were fairly oblivious to it. I did have some colleagues who went to church or synagogue or at some sort of religious institution, but they were kind of few and far between, and just the whole atmosphere in terms of that, at least in the English department, was it just almost either didn't exist or they, they just thought it was some sort of ridiculous superstition. Mm -hmm. um, some of them seemed like they treated religion like this is a new idea, like when did this pop up, like right. this is a trend, like I don't know, like extra crunchy Doritos, like hmm, this right. is brand new, Right. and then this, I don't like this. So I mean there was some of that. That's kind of coming from the faculty and then I guess I'm just also thinking about focus having to deal with the student population, which is engaged in, I don't know, kind of college has this reputation for the frat party, you know, the kegger, the, you know, the hedonism aspect. So you're kind of getting zapped, you know, from two different ends if you're going to be a missionary mm -hmm. on a campus. Like the faculty is wondering, who is this person? Why are they here? And the students are thinking, gosh, I got to get to the party. <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was a real challenge. Um, I think uh, that was what I experienced in the, in the two years that I was there. Um, and again, it's good to, I guess, confirm that it wasn't completely about left field, that that's how I felt in that, that faculty. You would observe kind of the same sense. It wasn't greeted with great excitement. Um, back then, even 12, I mean, even 13, uh, what was it, 13 years ago, uh, 13 to 15 years ago, there was a big, there was a lot of push to be very progressive or whatever you want to call it, or um, we call it left, I suppose. Um, and basically just... Aggressively go, atheist aggress is what one of my professors atheist. said he was to me. Aggressively atheist yeah. was his phrase. Yeah, so I mean, you're, there's, a real, there's a real value or um, a good product of that is it's just that you feel very comfortable talking to people that did not come from um, where you're at. I think that benefits... It benefited me for a variety of reasons. Um, you know... Uh, one, you start to be able to talk about things um, and engage people that are you think are hostile. Uh, you learn more about what you have to, what what is important to 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 say to them. Um, I think it makes you a better preacher. I think because you you are not you don't take things as given, and you're and you're more inclined to be able to to reason through and to talk through. You know why the church's position is on this thing or to be able to think with others and to help them kind of get them from where they began to to seeing things from the eyes of the church. I love that. So um, being a missionary was uh, was very, very important. And even though it was a two-year thing, it's, it was super, it continues to be. I just talked to a folks missionary for about an hour and a half last night as she transitions out of um, focus and she's going to be a pro-life attorney. And, you know, she talked about how she told me, I don't think it's a secret. She said, you know, I wasn't, didn't really get an exceptional um, LSAT score, but they were compelled and they were fascinated with the story of what I'd done for the last two years, which was, uh, she's an audiologist by trade and she wants to be a pro-life attorney now. Um, and so that's the kind of impact focus had. I mean, this is a, a, a girl who wasn't super interfaith, 
then at the end, she was, you know, she said she would never be a missionary, which is my story too. I said, I was with Benedict in four years, and I saw those missionaries. I said, I'll never do this. Um, but I'm glad never wasn't actually never. Uh, and, and it was very formative and continues to be that way, I think. So I'm, I'm excited when I hear the kids are doing it out of college. Um, it's a real gift because you're, you know, you're 22 and you're, most people are getting their career started and they're eager to do something with that degree. And then to go out and fundraise your salary, you fundraise the entire thing. And to um, kind of press pause on whatever it is is coming next. But I think that pause is good because it really allows for a lot of change of directions that might be where you're actually, you know, this girl's going to law school when she was going to do audiology, which is, those are... It's a total, totally different thing. Not the same at all. And so, um, but she's so thrilled and, you know, and that's not uncommon. So, but all that being said, yeah, that, that was, those were two, I think, really, really important things in terms of shaping me to be more, to be able to hopefully engage um, young minds. Um... And to feel comfortable, even if kids don't immediately accept all the teachings of the church, I don't panic. I don't, you know, brand them a heretic or, a, um, <laughs> you know, as evil. They, you know, I grew up in a very Catholic household, but that's not the not the experience of most people. You know, most people are not are not there. So you have to you have to be comfortable talking to them, you know? Father, I'm, I'm really grateful that you had this experience because um, it's just so good, I think, for people to be able to talk to people from every walk of life. I, I always kind of said that when I was at UMKC for 20 years, I really didn't have the money to travel, and so the world came to me. It was an international school on top of the other things that we just mentioned, so I, I met people from every mm-hmm. continent, I think I had, I don't know, 200 students from Kuwait in the early 90s, but I had people from Indonesia, uh, the Indonesia, excuse me, the Czech Republic, um, Rwanda, uh, and just, you know, all over the globe. Uh, I had people from Colombia. It, it was just completely amazing uh, just having people from everywhere. And, and I think it's just a great skill that, hey, look, had you told, never told me the story, I just would have assumed Father Mark could talk to everybody. Because it just seems like you can talk to everybody. And I'm glad that being at UMKC maybe kind of helped that along for you. Absolutely, it did. Yeah, I think it was um, It was a very, very... Because Benedictine is not that campus at all. I mean, you, you're, you know... At worst, you might encounter somebody who is... Maybe they're of a religious background, but... Um, maybe might, not practicing maybe at the moment. Maybe not practicing, or maybe they're living a party lifestyle or something. But that, that's, that's miles closer to, I think, the, to the church or to the faith or whatever you want to call it than, um, than UMKC, where not the same at all. Um, and so it was a, a, an important experience to be uh, at, that, at that school. Um, it's, yeah, and, and it was, it, it, you know, like I say, a, a growing up period or a, um, a stretching period where I really hadn't had that. I was homeschooled before, and then I went to Benedictine. Um, and Benedictine was, was great, and then UMKC was, was even, you know. So then, you know, it's, it's not, a, it's not, a, it's not a, a scary thing to, to meet people that, you know, have stickers on their laptops or, you know, shirts that say a certain thing, or, you know, it's not like... There's, I'm not at all uncomfortable. I'm looking for, you know, a way to talk to them rather than a way to 
avoid them. I think that's great. Yeah. I do. I do. I feel like we live in an era where people sort of want to be polarized or they just want to stick with their group and maybe just be siloed off. And who yeah. can blame them? Because yeah. I think there's a lot of um, hostility that gets projected maybe by the media. But I, I want to ask you your opinion about the students at UMKC in this regard. I felt like, okay, the faculty is one way, but then the student population, I kind of came to the conclusion that a lot of people came to the school just essentially as good people. Um, they, they were not biased against this religion or that religion. They, they really did not want to be polarized or to hate anybody. I just, I felt like some of the things that maybe the older people strongly believed, the younger people had not thought those issues through for mm -hmm. themselves. And as a result, they were very open-minded. Mm -hmm. That was the conclusion that I came to, that, you know, to the degree that people are open-minded, I, I thought, well, hey, maybe they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of malleability in college students. And it would be, I think, um, it would be a mistake to think that they, they, know, they know what they believe and why they believe it. Um, kids go to college and... You know, who, who calls it the Wikipedia generation? I mean, it is the Wikipedia generation. What does that mean? Well, I mean, they, you know, you're talking and they look something on Wikipedia and so they, they think that they know um, how to defeat what you're going to say or how to, or they're fact-checking it or they can verify or, or that they're educated on matters simply because they, okay. because they read a, a wiki stub. They, they've outsourced their brain to Wikipedia. No yes. need to look at any other sources. No need to look at anything else. And, and honestly, as a, as a priest... I can tell you that one of the worst sources, um, I mean, I'll use it for Honor. some things because, there's, because of convenience, the things that I don't, that are, that are unquestionable or that it seems like it would, they'd have a hard time getting wrong. Um, but in terms of religion, philosophy, writing homilies, um, it's not a good source. I mean, there's a lot of things that, you know, they, they you know, it's people writing it, you know, and they... Um, they just submitted, and, and honestly, you know, when it comes to their opinions, if it's inclined to be anti-church, uh, it will be left up there. So it's a terrible place in terms of to learn things, in terms of, I can say, certainly from a religion and philosophy standpoint, I'm not a scientist by trade or an engineer or, you know, um, astronomer or anything, so it's, I, I'm not able to quickly decipher how bad it is on these other issues, but I know in terms of those subjects is not very good and so you know I for a time I was a substitute teacher you know and kids would try that stuff you know you'd be talking and they try to they'd be looking up and trying to you know disprove you and in their mind they thought they could do it just by going to Wikipedia and or something instantaneous and say look I know more than you or, no, or look you're wrong um, and that's <laughs> I mean that's where people come to college I mean or, and, and it's a, not a not a very solid base because there's so much more knowledge than is on on Wikipedia and 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 so I think you're right and in, in other words that, that students when they come they are still open and they are still there's a possibility for sure of them being evangelized and being reached and that happens all the time in focus um, 
you know, a lot of UMKC students, I felt, were, were very much there because it made sense in terms of their life. They had the six-year med program. They had the dental program, you know. And it's a commuter school. Last time I was there, oh, which okay. was like maybe a year and a half ago, yeah. I asked because my, my niece was touring and she wanted to see, hey, do I want to go to UMKC? And so I asked and I said, is it still a commuter school? Yeah. And they said 90% of the people sure. live off campus. So, I mean, as a result, and when I taught there, the average age of the students was actually 28. Mm-hmm. So in other words, I live off campus. I have a job. Yeah. I'm just trying to complete a degree. There was a lot of that going on for sure. And so our, you know, we certainly tried to spend time in the few dorms that they had and on campus and stuff. Um, and, and to be part of what, what community there was um, that was present. But um, I do agree that, you know, there was a lot that was being pressed and forced upon them from the administration. And I even in my 23-year-old self, I could kind of see that um, some of this wasn't really who they authentically were. Um, but like I said, that malleability means that they kind of start to fall in line and, and follow the agendas of, of those that were there. Of other people. Yeah, for sure. Let's just crush their individuality and make them, yeah. you know, adhere to, I guess, the powers that be. Yeah, in many ways, honestly, I... As, I, as we see, without being too specific about a lot of what we see right now in culture, that, that, that was very much there 13 years ago. Mm. And that's kind of sad, but it reminds me a lot of what agenda was trying to be pushed at UMKC. And so, um, at least, you know, on the students and, this, and the clubs and the organizations and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and a lot of that is playing out in society right now. So... I guess you could say they were ahead of the curve. but Yeah, yeah, um, they, they are. I mean, that's actually kind of historical. Gosh, I've been on college campuses one way or another from 1986 to 2010. And gosh, if anybody was ahead of the curve, it was definitely English departments. They were advocating this sort of thing, gosh, roughly back in 1986 when I started. Mm-hmm. The good news is, is, yeah, is that students, there's still an opportunity to reach them. I mean, one of the most important times... Um, the most important times for the missionaries is the very first week of school. Kids will decide or, you know, they're attracted to certain groups or they get a certain flyer or they go to a party or they go to, you know, that first week is when you can get on their radar and be part of their lives. Yeah. And so it was the most important week we had to have. a. We had, there was events every single day of the week we had to do for the first two weeks just because, you know, they haven't made up their minds yet. And they may go to, um, you know, this sorority, or they may go to a focused Bible study, or they may go to, you know, some student gov thing, or they may go to, you know, who knows, or the English club or whatever. Um, and you have to be visible and, and, and available and, and, and there, and you have to, and you have to be good. Um, but we pray and we, you know, and it's just a, it's a cool time and it's an exciting time, but you, you can't, you know, those are two very, very important weeks and then people might kind of go down a certain road. Um, and it's possible to meet them again, you know, and a lot of kids will come back to the church later after their lives are broken at that point. Uh, but you'd like to get them at the beginning. You like to, like to teach them that there are still people that believe in God and there are still people that pray to him and want to read about scripture and believe that it's actually God's word and inerrant. And, uh, and that's, you know, exciting. And, you know, and the cool part is, is, you know, when you're 23 and 24, you got, you still got your college energy, you know, like we could, 
stay up late and, and wake up early if we had to. We would, we would, one of the cool things I still remember doing is um, on Thursday nights, we would, I'd have the guys over and we would uh, we'd watch Band of Brothers. We loved that. I, I watched that so many times. But for some reason, it was just very, it is, it's extremely well made, right? And it's very compelling for, for men of that age as they kind of are introduced to, you know, men that are 60, 70 years older than them and did something incredible, um, but were young when they, and, and are recollecting that, you know? And it's a real bonding experience just to watch. And then, so we'd stay up really late and then the next morning we had like mass and, and bagels at like 6.15 or something. That morning always came so early. Um, but you could do it back then. You could do it when you were 23 or 24. I think that's the real, um, one of the real strengths of, and one of the important reasons why Focus picks people that are recent college graduates because you have to live their hours. Right. And there's a real sense in which you're doing what they, which is true of all missionaries, whether it was the, you know, the Jesuits with the, um, with the Iroquois or the Mohawks, right? And, and, or whether it's the, um, you know, the, the um, oh my gosh, Franciscans, you know, on the West Coast or in, in Mexico or, um, you know, there's a real sense in which you, you have to live their life. That's if they own. get up at six, you should get up That's at six. And if they're eating rice and beans, you should eat rice and beans. Absolutely. And if, and if this is, yeah, this is what they do, then I'll do that too. Um, and that comes, you know, that was one of the old focus verses that was always, there were mem- verses that we were supposed to memorize. We even got tested on it at the very last day of summer training, one of which was, you know, so dearly beloved did you become to us that we, did, that we were determined not only to share um, the gospel, but also our very selves with you. And that was a really um, foundational verse for being a focus missionary, which was, we're not only there to, to, to hand you a catechism and to show you, you know, why the church is right about this or um, that this is, you know, uh, this is clearly uh, the truth and this matter, right? But also, we want to be part of your lives in a way which, um, you know, because you're beloved to us, you know? And so we'll go to your intramural games and we'll um, eat that terrible cafeteria food with you, you know, and we'll walk, you know, up that stupid hill to class um, that we or that everybody hates, you know? And all that is part of the process, Um and you go to a campus that you didn't know, and then you start to become, um, and so it's a wonderful thing. I mean, and it teaches you how to, to evangelize, and the hope is that that is not something that you just practice when you're a college student or, be, or a post-grad, but rather something that you also do as an adult, and that you continue to make disciples even when you're 32 or 46 or 59 or whatever, and that you're not just, it's not just a small season that you evangelize, but that you've learned how to preach the gospel um, in a way that is uh, continues, you know, for until the time you die and hopefully go to eternal life. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this is good, and uh, there's so many things that that I would love to pause on. I I would just love to ask you more about evangelization, and I'd I'd love to ask you um, how does if if I'm a believer in Christ and if I try to be a faithful follower in Christ, how does that show up in my life? in such a way that my life is maybe better or happier than, I don't know, say that of an atheist. Mm-hmm. Um, gosh, I also want to ask you about homeschooling. There's so many things. How is, how is your life happier with Christ than without Christ, right? Yeah, yeah, like, I don't know, you got two brothers and one of them becomes a believer and then the other one becomes an atheist. 
how do the differences tend to manifest themselves in a person's life? Wow. Um, I, mean, I mean, individuals are going to vary, but sociology is the study of groups. Sure. So I, I think, you know, we could look at trends, for example. Sure. I think you, I mean... Without evolving into stereotypes. Sure. Most people would describe, and I think it's uh, at least the most common way of describing people with Christ or without Christ, is the type of joy that radiates from them. And I think that that's, it's a, joy is not something to be sought in itself, right? It's um, a byproduct. It's a byproduct. And so people look for that, but they are attracted to it. And that's a good thing um, because it will lead us to uh, truth, who is Christ, and to happiness and to his, you know, his divine life within us. Um, But we would say that, I would, you know, I see that at St. James at the high school, you know, uh, right now there's, there are kids that are just absolutely joyful um and it's not fake right there's and there is fake joy uh which you know people will talk about in conversion experiences like you know how they're faking it and it really wasn't there all along um but i think those who are truly in union with christ it's it's not even something that they try to project it's just that they are that way right why can't atheists have that joy is it because they have nothing to look forward to I, I mean, I, I'm not trying to disparage. I think sometimes people land in, say, the atheist category because their reason has possibly led them there. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think people have faith, uh, and then they pursue kind of a line of thinking, or they don't have faith, and maybe yeah. they pursue. But I think for other people, maybe it's not a line of thinking. Maybe it's instinctual. But yeah. But do you feel like the atheists? I don't know. I'm not trying to pick on them. I mean, it's Augustine, right? Our hearts are made for you. And okay. we're not going to be, you know, we're restless until we rest in you. And oh. there's a real sense of just that. We're built for this. Yeah. I we're we're kind of like a car. A car runs on gas and humans run on God. You can substitute things that might have the appearance of it. And you can substitute things that, you know, Satan is always proposing things that look, that look similar or contain some strain of truth in them. But they're not really the truth, right? And, okay. And that and that can be true of people who are looking for meaning in, and they continue that search that they think they found it, um, or they might, or maybe a better a better hope would be that they found something that is meant to reflect and draw them deeper into Christ, right? So um, the classic, you know, four levels of happiness. I mean, there are things that are good. Um, but there are higher goods, and so they, they you know, they may have stopped, found that. Um, you know, anybody can find level one happiness in terms of um, self-service and things. But we would talk about what what are the four levels of happiness? Oh my gosh, um, the very basic one would be uh, like um, just material pleasures oh, or whatever okay. like like uh, a bodily pleasure like i eat a cupcake pizza joy feels really good at the okay. moment you know yeah. like um i eat 50 cupcakes yeah you can, then i join a diet program well then you realize that 50 cupcakes isn't um isn't actually uh and there is a limit to how much joy there is in 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 cupcakes before they turn into misery like i have 20 cupcakes and now i'm miserable so we'd call that pleasure right okay look at the list let me make sure you got this right um but so the, the, the first one is, I, what do they call that? Latus, uh, material objects. Okay, material objects. Um, and then the second one is, is ego gratification. So a sense of... 
status maybe? Status. Like, I don't know, when students say to me, I'm your favorite student, aren't I? That kind of thing. They kind of want yeah, the status. I, I think they're joking, most of them, but sometimes they're not. Sure. Um, being, uh, being admired, being better, you might feel this even from athletics to some degree of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a, I'm one. But you'll notice that those, a lot of them are, you know, they don't know what to go. They athletes that don't know where to go after that, right? They retire right. from the game. Right. That's very difficult for them because now what? That's right. Right. Hey, game. we won the state championship, which is amazing. Sure. Um, but I'm a senior and I graduate. Sure. And I'm not going to play college ball. Sure. Or there are people that also, you know, when there's no more battles left to be fought, then what? Right. And the Jacko Willink, the famous Navy SEAL, says you have to get a new mission. Yeah. And it's. Tough one, the the end of that, the end of the line there. Well, a lot of people don't, and that's where they, uh, that's where I think people really suffer because they just every day they wake up and they say, now what? Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know, we're certainly, there's a lot of level two happiness going around right now. You know, everybody's part of a gym, everybody is, looks good on Instagram. Um, They are getting a sense of fulfillment from, either admiring themselves or being admired by others. Right. Um, likes and clicks. Likes and clicks. Uh, or or self, you know, look how good I look and that kind of thing. Where do you go from there? I mean, that's the question. Well, I, I noticed whenever I really got into weightlifting and things like that, then I got older. So, you know, maybe someday I'll be like that 98-year-old guy on Instagram who's still pumping iron. Right. But, but on the other hand, you're a 98-year-old guy. But when that's taken away from you, right? What which happens? which the poor man passed away. Yeah, he was in great shape, and what a great life! I sure. just I admire him. Sure, and I mean, yeah, I guess it, you could either be content with that, uh, or I don't think he was. He had a lot of other things going on. Yeah, then level three, you know, is is uh, Peace Corps, serving others. Oh, okay. Um, finding grat- finding a level of happiness in terms of. Um, working for the good of others, um, making other lives, you know, better, um, improving the world, that kind of thing. Okay. Okay. Um, which is, I mean, again, these are all good. They're not there. There's a certain level of, uh, they're meant to draw us deeper in and they're not to be, you know, sought for themselves. Right. There's a song I think from the 1950s called, is that all there is? You know, like, I have the cupcake. Mm-hmm. Is that all there is? No, sure. I could also look good on Instagram. Is that all there is? Sure. No, I could also go serve people. For sure. But is that all there is? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And and they can't be, they're finite because, you know, first of all, they can all be taken away. I mean, there's a, there's a way in which, I mean, it is, you know, this one gets very, very close. I mean, in terms of serving Christ uh, in others is certainly a, a very beautiful thing it's christ-like mm-hmm. and we would say we would contend and i think we're right to say that it's all draws us uh to christ and even if people don't know it that all that you know when you for the least of my brother you do it for me it's a real pointing to what's our you know whatsoever you do is is ultimately meant to draw us to christ and is a part and is a participation in in him. Is that level four then? Well, four is, is the beatific vision, right? Is, okay. Is, is, is God himself, um, who 
is there and supplies our deepest level of happiness even when we can't serve others, even when we, you know, we can't eat food and we're eating through a feeding tube, even when we're, um, there's nothing to be admired about us anymore, we're wrinkly or um, we can't, we haven't accomplished anything lately, you know. There's a real sense, and you see that in, in quite a number of saints and the way in which they, their holiness, and they're still joyful. Yeah, they radiate joy. And that's like, coming back, I guess we've come full circle in the sense of that's still there even, even, you know, with what they can or can't do, it, it still persists. Which is a good test for us as Christians is when these things are stripped away, what does that do to us, you know? Right, so okay, so I, I can't eat cupcakes anymore because I've got an allergy. All I can eat is prunes, and then I don't look good on Instagram. I look like a prune, and uh, I can't do any service anymore because I'm physically not able to. Sure. So I look like a prune. All I eat is prunes. I can't do any service. Can I still be happy? Level for happiness would say yes. Absolutely. I mean, you're, you're at that, you're, yeah, you're participating or... Um, God is dwelling within you. Um, you're united with the one that you're made for, as Augustine said. So yeah, you should still, there still is a, a, a deep joy within you. And I think you see that within people that are living that way. They wouldn't say, you wouldn't say to them, why are you happy? And they would say, well, because I'm doing good for others. Or they wouldn't say, because, you know, I really had an amazing, um, you know, sandwich from Jimmy John's. <laughs> or, and they wouldn't say, um, you know, because I've accomplished so much, they would say because of Christ who dwells within me. So, you know, and that is something that, again, it's amazing, you know, and you see that in people, you know, whether it's Maximilian Colby, they're singing psalms as they're withering away hmm. in, a de in, a, in a gas chamber, and he's got all the prisoners as they have, as their death is 100% going to happen to them. Maximilian Colby, for people don't, who don't know, was in Auschwitz. Right. One of the more famous death camps. And uh, volunteered his, his, um, to die for an escaped prisoner, one of the 10 that stepped forward. He, he was well, basically... Well, on behalf of somebody else, rather, that was picked. Yeah, trying to take somebody else's take his place. place yeah. Because of his wife and children. And didn't have to do it. But it wasn't you know, and that's the thing that we would have to be careful. You know, contemporary society might try to strip away the, the God element and say, well, he was just happy because he was doing something good. I mean, you know, first of all, that's an extreme level of, of charity and gift of self where you're, when you're going to die um, and you do not have to, and you're still, I mean, he was still a young man. It wasn't as if he was old uh, at that point. So he had a lot of life ahead of yeah. him. Um, and could have lived. The man that, that he saved lived after Auschwitz, he actually survived the death camp and went on to go home to his wife and children. Yeah, I um, suppose people could try to explain away sure. um, Father Maximilian Kolbe's charity right. by just saying, oh, well, you know, he just was doing this because it made him feel good because he was doing an act of service. Maybe, it would, be, maybe it would be better <laughs> to take Father Maximilian Kolbe at face value, at his actual words. Like, why am I doing this? Well, I'm trying to save this other person mm -hmm. because... I believe in Christ. Yeah, I think right, exactly. And if you go to Wikipedia, you might not see you <laughs> might not see that part. They might say, "Well, you know, he was so nice to other people," and or something like that, right? 
Um, Wikipedia had like a brief shining year when they tried to be objective. I remember when it first came out and everybody said, well, this is garbage. Anybody could edit it. And uh, there were uh, people, I was looking at some of the citations and they were posted by people with names like Clowns Might Eat Me. I mean, that was like the name of the, you know, and just stuff was contradictory of reality, et cetera. Then they hired a professional staff and things looked good. But I guess one of the co-founders of Wikipedia recently came out and says that it has become so biased. It's so bad. And uh, what's the Soviet word, agitprop? You know, where we just go full Pravda, where we're just trying to push some form of a narrative. Oh, it's so bad. And, you know, on 58 different subjects. Absolutely. You know, I was listening to another podcast, and the man was interviewing an author, and he said to the author, it looks like they're having a war on your Wikipedia page because if I go there on Monday, it says one thing. And if yeah. I go there on Tuesday, yeah. people have deleted half of that and posted something else. And if I go back on Wednesday, then the first group has mounted a counterinsurgency. Right. Yeah. And, it, and you know, I don't, you are much more versed already, I can tell, in terms of the origins and, and the seasons. Although I do think I agree that there was, it felt like there was a season when it was more serious minded. About five, six, seven years ago. Yeah. Um, and it's no, it's long since abandoned that as you look at, um, cordless bungee jump. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, and maybe it began well in terms of like, we'll help people quickly come to information. Um, Yeah. Because not everybody keeps Encyclopedia Britannica on their shelves anymore. Right. Um, I grew up with the 63 set, so there was a lot I wondered about after the, um, that year. Uh, that was missing <laughs> from my life. So, you know, there, but, and, and so, you know, I was born and, and really grew up when the, you know, internet was beginning to get big when I was an adolescent. Okay. Um, and so, you know, you could, I guess it might have, it was probably already bigger than I knew, you know, but it certainly was growing up at that time. And, um, Wikipedia was still a few years off, though, even in, yeah. the, even in the 90s. Was yeah, still... there was a book that came out in the mid-90s, I believe, could have been after, called Wikonomics. And it was basically about these platforms where anybody could participate. And just how great this was, because things would be crowdsourced. Um, yeah, in theory, it was a beautiful idea. But it's really interesting if you just read books on various types of media, because when television first came out, people just thought... This is going to be the greatest way to get information across <laughs> to the public in the history of the world. Yeah. That was in the 50s. Yeah. And then a little bit later, people said 90% of everything on television is garbage. Yeah. So that was in the 50s. Then if you go back to the 20s, you yeah. see a similar phenomenon going on with radio. And then if you go back to the 1890s, you see a very similar phenomenon going on with newspapers. Right. People said, oh, the newspaper, this is going to be so great because they can print you know, three editions per day and they can get all this information out to people. Well, then came along the original fake news, yellow journalism, William Randolph Hearst. I mean, it was the original clickbait. Headlines were things like, gigantic alligator crawls out of sewer and eats woman. You know, woman stands on ledge, crowd yells, jump. You know, just anything to get people to buy the newspaper. It's, yeah. I, maybe there's no shortcut to knowledge, Tim. Maybe you actually have to take the, the authentic and traditional route of, you know, reading things from actually read things books and sources and stuff rather than just have everything summarized for you and then you become an expert again like the high schoolers that I would substitute for uh but they were never you know I always derived a little bit of pleasure from the fact that they you know 
thankfully, after actually being in school and actually going to um, college and grad school, that, you know, I, I was able to uh, defeat their wiki knowledge base, <laughs> you know, whatever they present and say, well, it says here, it's like, yeah, but did you know this, you know, and, and no, because that wasn't on the stub, so... Um, but yeah, so authentic joy and, and happiness, I mean, that's just, those, that, that joy is usually what is a, a real classic feature of, of one who has Christ within them, and it, draw, it is incredibly attractive in a way that, that few other things are. You know, they describe people like John Paul II and Mother Teresa having that sort of thing too. I mean, I, I never, I didn't meet Mother Teresa, I did get to see John Paul, but he was very, very... Uh, it was from a distance. It was in 2005, I think. Yeah. Four, okay. Four. It was the, hold on. One, two, three. The winter of three, four. So right over Christmas and um, a pit, uh, Solemnity of Mary, Epiphany, all that kind of stuff. So, but he was, you know, he was a year away from death at that point a little bit. So uh, I know we didn't meet him in person. But that kind of joy, though, that people say, wow, this is incredibly, there's something of, that I cannot explain, and there's something here that says I need to ask questions and learn about this person and see what's going on. And they wouldn't, you know, and none of those people, again, none of those people would say, and our students are the same. I mean, the ones that I, that I see that, is, that, that, are, that other people want to be around, I mean, they have a joy that comes from Christ. And, and he trumps all the other things out there. If you pay attention, right, um, if you're willing to if you're willing to, to look. I just want to, okay, this is probably my, I have a math degree, and this is probably my math background coming out, but so I, I think we've made the case for belief in Christ and religion. I, I think you pointed out that it gets us to level four happiness, and uh, it, I, I think we've also sort of implied that it gives a person's life meaning mm -hmm. as well, whereas otherwise a person might be wondering, why am I doing what I'm doing? What's the meaning and purpose of it all? Where is it all going? What is this adding up to? Right. You know, for example, you could build an empire of some kind. Sure. But honestly, what's the point? Because eventually you're going to pass away. And if there's no God, well, then you're just food for worms. So that's not so great. So my math background basically says, well, let's consider the opposite case a little bit, and, and I feel like we've done that, that the opposite case just does not provide this meaning. I just want to add one other last little thought, and, and if you don't want to comment on it, I understand, because I'm going to go kind of negative on this, but there's any number of books out there in psychology where they will try to help people to not drink too much, take drugs, overeat, overspend, overgamble, uh, overfret, overworry. Um, basically shut off the desire for excess of too much on these other things. Well, these other things are people grasping at happiness. I've, I've read the Alcoholics Anonymous book twice, and I've got some friends who go to AA. I'm not an alcoholic, but I, I just really, really like this book. Mm -hmm. And chapter two starts off with, it's, it's called We Agnostics. And, and I can't quote it exactly, I can paraphrase it basically said we alcoholics thought that we were smarter than everybody else, better than everybody else, wiser than everybody else, and our best thinking got us here to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And, and they would point out that oftentimes people would have to hit some kind of rock bottom 
They would have to admit that their life had become unmanageable, unmanageably bad. Mm -hmm. You know, like the people I met, oh my gosh. I mean, you're, you're looking at their spouse won't talk to them. Their children won't talk to them. They always say like the job is the last thing to go. But I, I've met people who've been fired from six, seven jobs. You know, so I mean, their friends are gone, etc. Their health, it's, it's on the way out. I mean, why do they keep doing this? You know, and well, it's because they're grasping at this pleasure that they once got from it, maybe 10, 15 years ago. Uh, anyway, that was kind of the agnostic crowd. I, I, not like every agnostic, not every atheist, but, but I guess you're, you're looking for some kind of pleasure and just the result is just very devastating. It's, it's just mm. bad. Mm -hmm. So it's the opposite of happiness. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know if I'm asking a question or making a statement or just asking you to respond. It just I, seems I, pretty rough. We, uh, I guess if I'm right, well, if Father, Father Bill Bruni always talks about the 12-step program and how it was written by a priest, I think, right? You know, I, I don't know. I, I read a history of AA, and it was very ambiguous to me. I don't quite remember. I think I read it 20 years ago. I know it was founded by a man named Bill W., and he had a friend who was, I think, a doctor, and they just discovered that they could stay sober because they understood each other, that, okay, an alcoholic might get yelled at by their family, hey, stop drinking, but there's nothing like another alcoholic who is trying to be sober. They're both trying to be sober. Right. The bottom line is they understand each other. They yeah. get each other. Right. They, they form a real community. It's not somebody on the outside saying, hey, you should do this. And mm -hmm. of course they should. Sure. And they know that sometimes. Mm -hmm. Then they forget because of denial. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think the, the program, at, um, which has engendered a ton of other 12-step programs, right? Yes. Um, although the original is probably still the best in terms of uh, the content and the and um, the success. And, and I think it was, I mean, Father Bill Bruning always tells me it was a priest that maybe either didn't found it but wrote the book. Well, the 12 steps are very Catholic. They are. And then, and then so it's you, no surprise that, you know, that it would have been or that it is, but um, it's very much founded upon God. But... Um, but I am impressed with the wisdom in it that is, yeah, not just, not just applicable if, if you're dealing with, you know, alcoholism and people around you are suffering and you're suffering, but also it's, it, it, it is good for beyond that. We probably have time for one good, uh, happy question before okay. I go. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I'm sorry. I that's think okay. I let I us down a... Uh, that's okay. I just let us down both paths, maybe, that's both okay. the light and the dark. The Sorry light and the that. dark. No, okay. it's okay. I just want to end on, on a good note because okay. I'm, I'm going out to Camp Tekka with it today this year. Our friends down there, a lot of our St. James kids work down there too. But I'm okay. going to see them all, not just the St. James kids. How about this as a question? Okay. What ultimately made you decide to become a priest? Hmm. I mean, because, yeah. okay, let's say we're going to be good Catholics. There's 100,000 different ways you could serve the Lord. Yeah, for so sure. So why be a priest? Um, because you're, you're made for this. I think... You know, people, it's a very, very, you know, you, you're surely aware that it's not an uncommon question. Um, I would have always answered it differently depending on where I was. So when I was a child, it was a very, um, it was a very primitive or basic attraction to the, to the life. Um, I had no idea what a priest actually did. I did just saw him on the altar. I thought I'd like to do that one day. That was, well, was seven um, but it develops and it matures and is, and is um, 
changes over time. When I was a kid, I thought that all the saints became priests, so I should become one too if I want to become a saint. Um, and then in high school, I thought it was a beautiful thing to serve others and to, um, to love Christ in this way and to minister to, to his people. I thought I should do it because of that reason. And then, um, you know, I certainly would have felt in college that it was a call, that Christ was calling me, um, which is also a good reason too, uh, but still needed to be further refined um, because there are uh, many other things you can do to serve Christ. And um, it's not about choosing something that is best, like choosing the highest good, which is what it was at one time for me. And it's not about, I mean, there is a beauty in, in God calling and you responding 100%. Um, but I would add to it, I think, in the last stage of my discernment um, was a sense that he's calling, but and I was angry. And I was like, why this thing? Why have you chosen this for me? Why do I have to do this? Why have you... Why, why this? And I didn't get any say in this. And if you've really made me for this, you know, that doesn't seem fair or something like that. I would, I would have struggled to articulate it, but it was a real sense of oppression or injustice. Um, it got kind of dark and heavy there for a little bit. You, but you felt ripped off or? Something or just a, a lack of volition, I guess. Okay. In the sense of if, if you've asked me to do this, when, when was it my choice? Or that kind of thing. Um, now, anger kind of clouds our vision, or at least it did my vision. I think it clouds all of us, but it certainly clouded my vision. Um, and eventually, when, when calmer, I was able to, to pray and really think and, and, and to experience a sense of um, that I'm made for this. Not just that I'm asked, being asked to do this, but this is um, what is best for me, what is most fulfilling, what brings me most joy. Um, um, and that I'm shaped for it. And so it's ultimately good for me as well as being um, simply a response. Uh, I would, in the last, I think probably in the first couple years or so, I used to give a homily talking about candles. And I still will sometimes occasionally give that one. I don't, depending, I've probably given it twice uh, on two different occasions, but just, you know, you go to an altar and there's many different candles and there are, all the flames are burning a certain heat and intensity and brightness. Um, you know, vocations are kind of like that. You could, you could choose to do this one in which you'll burn this way. Um, but why not burn, you know, hot and bright and um, in a way that is, you know, you're still, it's clear that they're, they're both still burning, but one is which, and this is made, you know, it's working the way it should. It's going the way it ought to, you know? It's not being... Um, it's not dimmer. It's it's just giving light and heat and doing exactly what it's supposed to do. And I think um, I kind of think about that with vocations. The Lord is not going to make us miserable if we if we decide not to respond. There are people I know, for instance, that have said, "Well, you know, I really was afraid to do this, or um, I married this person, and you know." And there's a they're 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 not miserable. Um, but, you know, there is a sense in which that we ought to do what we're, what we're made for or that it makes sense. I mean, there's a lot of ways of describing it, but it becomes less burdensome and oppressive. And you start to see the father as being good. And it's not as if he's punishing or, um, you know, saying, well, other people will be happy, but you'll be doing this thing which kind of is not really desirable. Um, and, 
you know, that perspective is important. But that only comes through prayer, I think. And I think good wrestling with it, a good wrestling with the Lord and saying, why, why? You kind of, you know, shake your fist a little bit and you question and you, but then you start to listen and you start to realize that there's great peace in doing this thing that you're made for. Um, and it's not, I mean, I think maybe it comes more with religious vocations perhaps than married life, right? Um, but it could be applied just in the sense that I'm made for this. And maybe there are other things out there that are attractive, and maybe there are other things I'd be good at. Um, but at the end of the day, this is the one which, as a as a little flame, as a flame, I burn brightest, um, and it makes you know I'm winning. I'm not a loser in this situation. Everybody's winning, including me. And I think I think that's the that's what I try to teach young people too. It's not. It's I think call is fine language. Is I think people have used call the language of call and response. You know, and it is true that it all begins with God. But sometimes we lose the sense of volition in the sense that, and, and we can be angry about, but why this call? You know, but why am I called to go to this land or to serve in this way or whatever? Um, and the Lord fulfills and sustains us in that thing, that vocation, that life that we're called to live. Um, that's, why I get, that's why I like to say we're made for this. Um, because I think it's a little bit more fulfilling or more complete and holistic to say, I'm made to do this. And, it's a, and it's, it's, it's a wonderful life that I'm living. And I could have chosen something else, but this is what's going to be best. So that's what I, that's, that's, you know, I don't know, a lot of wrestling. I'm, I'm, I was only ordained two years ago. Um, it was a longer road for, for me than most. Um, but I think wrestling is important because I, I, if I didn't wrestle, if I didn't discern, if I didn't pray, if I didn't ultimately calm down and listen, um, you know, I wouldn't be as nearly as convicted. I've, I've, I've been a priest for a little over two years and I've never, there's never been a day when I said, why did I do this? I wish I'd never done this. I mean, there are always days in which they're, you know, slightly more challenging than others. Um, but I've never looked back and said, man, I, I, I really wish I'd done something else, you know, not for once. So... Good discernment does that. Father, thank you so much. That was just an absolutely awesome way to end. I hope we can do this again sometime. Absolutely. There's a lot of questions that you had written down that we didn't even get to. So, <laughs> But thank you for your time, Tim, and letting me come on your podcast. And I wish you all the best as you keep interviewing people. And and uh, and God bless you for your work. Thank you so much. Well, and, and God bless you, Father. I know you do great work because I see it and I enjoy it. And I know others do, too. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you again for listening to Seemingly Ordinary. The biggest favor that you could possibly do for me would be for you to share this episode far and wide. 